This CBF podcast conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theology education. Study online or on campus and learn from Fuller seasoned scholar practitioners and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next steps in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. Hey podcast listeners, this is your host, Andy Hale. We are thrilled to bring you another year of CBF's podcast with a cavalcade of brilliant guests such as Father Tom Reese, Washington Post's Sarah Pulliam Bailey, Mark Charles, Soong Chen Ra, and Matthew Paul Turner. And that's just skimming the surface of the first few months. As you know, last fall, we launched the Podcast Listener Support Project. This is an opportunity for you to connect closer with the podcast and premier guest. By becoming a podcast supporter, you can join me on an interview with premier guests such as Walter Brueggemann, Sarah Bessie, and Brian McLaren. So check out cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Timothy McMahon King. Tim is the author of Addiction Nation. He also runs a digital strategy communication firm called Vagabond Strategies. Tim, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Now, before we get to your work and, of course, the book, tell us a little bit more about you. What's your story? So I grew up on a farm in New Hampshire, where I now live. Grew up in a Christian home, like I'm guessing quite a few of your listeners did. And early on, I I will be honest, um, it was not cooperative Baptist, but it was another brand of Baptist who had a private school in New Hampshire that I attended for a few years And I can proudly say that I was never technically kicked out of the school while I was asked whether or not um, if I could pray to see if God wanted me to stay. (laughs) So that was my early experience with Baptists. But I've heard I now know the cooperative Baptists are a much different brand than I grew up with. That's uh, that's fantastic. I actually had a friend uh, who went to. We'll just say another seminary of another denomination that has Baptists in it. And 
he had to write a paper on his uh, salvation experience and he got an F with the mark on it. Are you sure you really are a follower of Jesus? So um, <laughs> it, it's amazing what can be said and done <laughs> in the name of yeah. Jesus. Um, well, I did almost fail Bible class, not for getting answers wrong, but for asking too many questions, which was the <laughs> quote from the teacher. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, Jesus didn't respond to a question with a question. So there's Never. that. Yeah. So uh, you spent some time um, with Sojourners. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah. So for me, I ended up going to school in Chicago that eventually brought me to DC and growing up on a farm in New Hampshire, I had never really seen or experienced poverty before. I knew that injustice existed out there somewhere hypothetically and could read stories about it. But going to school in Chicago was the first time that I saw it uh, viscerally and experienced it. And at the time I was also trying to figure out how much of my faith was my own and how much of it was just something that I was raised with. And I kind of had my own project of breaking down my faith. And I decided that even if nothing else was true, the one thing that I would want to live my life by no matter what was the command to love my neighbor as myself. So I figured I would start there and ended up on a journey of meeting homeless folks, sleeping out on the streets on the weekends with homeless people to understand more about their life and what was going on. Soon that led me to ask the question of, you know, if we're bringing out food to help folks, if we're bringing out clothes, why are people homeless in the first place? That brought me to beginning to understand advocacy. Why is housing so expensive in Chicago? Why is, does someone lose their house um, because they've got medical bills that they can't pay? And that led me to some advocacy in Chicago started working there as a community organizer and soon connected with Sojourners in DC after we had been uh, gathering students and other young adults to sleep out on the streets in solidarity with their homeless brothers and sisters. And that brought me to DC and working with Sojourners. So over the course of about eight years, got to help there in anything from communications work to long-term strategy and planning, working on anything from climate change to gun violence issues. What was your biggest takeaway from working with Sojourners? There is a deep need for people of faith to be involved in the political process and not hide their faith. I know, especially good Baptist folks who understand the importance of a separation between church and state, but that doesn't mean that we leave all of our identities at the door. We can speak from our values, we can speak from our tradition in a way that is not excluding, in a way that does not about legislating a particular religious belief or tradition, but in a way that engages us in the political system as whole people. We need to be able to go in there with our voices, with our values, with our beliefs, um, in a way that connects us with other people who might not share all of those same values and beliefs and might come to a similar conclusion for different reasons. But that kind of voice, being able to show people that the policies we have need to reflect shared values that we have as people is critical. And I think that people of faith, because they have the opportunity to do it so well, can also be the people who do it poorly. 
Um, but that isn't, that doesn't mean we should step out of that kind of public witness. That means we need to model what it looks like to have a better public witness. Hmm. Tell us a little bit about Vagabond strategies. So I left DC about four years ago and started a long move back to New Hampshire and got a chance to take a breath and uh, spent some time actually moving around Europe, working on various farms, anything from making goat cheese in the foothills of the Taurus Mountains in Turkey to getting to work on an agriturismo in Italy, learning how to make prosciutto. And during that time, getting to work with my hands was a great time to reflect on uh, what was effective in our work in advocacy and where there was still a growing edge. And so one of the things that I do now is I work with nonprofits, advocacy organizations, and even some political candidates on figuring out two things. How do you translate the values that you hold into policy principles that people can understand? And how do you help people take those values and lead them along to see how that can apply in different areas in their life? I think oftentimes when we see these gaps in public policy or in the world around us, we assume that it's just a resistance to some sort of justice, when in fact, a lot of people haven't gone through the process to understand how, say, a value that they have of welcoming people into their house for a meal or welcoming someone they meet in church into what that might look like to welcome a refugee into our country or to welcome an asylum seeker or to welcome an immigrant. And that can be a long, hard process to educate people, but that's important work to do. And at the same time, I also help different groups think through what that looks like in a digital space. We have all these new tools, we have all these new capabilities that increase our ability to connect with other people. It also can increase our disconnectedness. And it's about how we use those tools. And I think making sure that nonprofits or churches understand the best ways to use those is part of how we can make that space a better reflection of who we are and not something that just divides us and separates us from those who disagree. Well, as we look ahead to the 2020 election, what do you think um, are some of the topics and um, what do you think are some of the pieces that, that politicians that you might be working with need to be thinking about, about how policy and faith merge? Yeah, one of the things that I think is going to be critical is there's there it's true that our country is divided, I think, in a unique way that I'm not going to say we haven't our country has never seen before, but is different than it was even 15, 20 years ago. Um, but what's interesting is that there is a population of the country that felt that we were more divided uh, under the Obama administration. People experience the world in vastly different ways. And I don't mean this from a policy standpoint necessarily, that we need someone who is moderate in an election. I do think we need someone who calls us to our best values and who can see doing that in a way that doesn't exclude um, large parts of our country. And if a candidate is able to regardless of their policy proposals, speak and act in a way that doesn't push out part of the country or say that um, the person who doesn't vote for them is somehow hopeless or anti-American. 
I think that's going to be a person our country really needs. And that's a kind of leadership that no matter what happens in the policy realm, we can still have backlash within broader culture. I care a lot about immigration. I care a lot about um, making sure that we have fair and just immigration reform. And there's a pathway for people who are currently here uh, to become citizens or to become permanent legal residents. And I think that's crucial, but simply passing a bill um, doesn't get us all the way there. We also need the kind of moral leadership that helps us all see the country as a place that is strengthened by our immigrant heritage and by the immigrants who are coming today and by the people that we are welcoming in who are refugees or asylum seekers. You've got a new book out, Addiction Nation, What the Op Opioid Crisis Reveals About Us. Uh, this is a challenging look um, in which you investigate the way that addiction robs people of freedom. You wrote, the exploration of addiction is a nation and culture is not just an external searching, but a path of internal discovery. This book, in, in many regards, is a personal narrative. Um, would you take us a little deeper there? Yeah, and the, this book starts with my own story, which is rooted back in my time in D.C. I had just moved to D.C. to work with Sojourners, had been there a little over a year, and ended up waking up one night in extreme pain when my in my stomach. Went into the hospital and found out that I had had a mild case of pancreatitis. I was 25 at the time. Doctors weren't sure why. That's pretty odd for someone my age to have pancreatitis. So they started doing a series of tests and procedures. And one of those procedures, they found out what was wrong, but they also caused an even bigger problem. Turns out that I had this abnormally formed duct right near my pancreas that when they tried to take a look at it with a scope, they agitated it instead of just being able to take a look at it. And that had caused the pancreatitis by catching a small gallstone and the scope hitting it uh, then caused acute necrotizing pancreatitis. So now I'm in the ICU. The doctors aren't sure if I'm going to live or die. They give it a 50-50 shot. My family comes in and is ready to say goodbye. I ended up making it through after a few months in the hospital, lots of different ups and downs. And it was really clear while I was in the hospital what was going on. It was scary. It was dangerous. But we had the medical language. We had the, the relational language to talk about it. My parents knew how to um, communicate that to their church and to prayer groups and to staff people. There was all of this language and ways of understanding exactly what was happening, even though it was hard and scary. But what happened next, we didn't really have as much language for. We didn't know how to grapple with. Because as I made it through this up and down of, <clears throat> of this medical crisis, I was forming a new complication, and that was an opioid addiction. I had been put on heavy doses of hydromorphone. I had been put on doses of fentanyl as the time extended. They needed to give me heavier and heavier drugs to help ease the pain. And at the time, those drugs were a godsend. They were exactly what I needed to make it through the pain, but also to make sure that I didn't die, that my body wasn't in so much stress that the or my organs would shut down. But eventually, that relationship shifted. And it was luckily caught early on by a doctor who knew how to approach that. And I think of my story and kind of coming out of that experience of one of early detection, one of what happens when everything goes right. And that sadly, most people don't have what I have. 
and their stories far too often end in tragedy. One of the fascinating sections of this book um, was kind of the uh, sociological study you did around social uh, dislocation. And you point the major stress of relocation and circumstantial and forced and unwanted um, relocation compounds with um, trappings of minority status and socioeconomic disadvantage and distrust of institutions, along with the trauma of the undercurrent of a, the addiction plague, um, has hit certain dip, di, uh, di, certain demographics, if you will. Um, so I wonder if you might take us a little deeper there as to kind of the the zeroed in perspective as to um, maybe why at times we look at certain populations as um, having a higher proclivity to addiction than, than others. Yeah, to dive into this, I'm going to go back to a study that was done in the 1970s. So normally people have been thinking about addiction as simply the presence of a, a chemical. If you take heroin over time, you're going to become addicted. Maybe some people have some genetic predispositions to it, but it's really focused around the chemicals that we put in our body that would then cause an addiction. And there was one researcher, he was looking at this and he goes, it doesn't seem quite right. And the studies that were being done at the time were normally done um, with rats in what they called Skinner boxes. So you'd put a rat in a small box, they'd have two water bottles, one was just pure water and one was water laced with morphine or cocaine. The rats would just keep pressing the little button, keep getting more morphine, keep getting more cocaine. They'd abandon everything else. And during that time, they would either starve themselves or they would overdose on the drug. And the doctor said, well, what about the cage? Is there something about the cage that might be causing this behavior? So he created what we call rat park. And it was this large cage with lots of different rats where the rats had little friends they could play with. They had mates they could mate with and they had little pieces of paper that they could play with. And then they put in those same water bottles. But what was interesting is they never saw the same kind of usage that they saw with rats isolated in a cage. And so this ended up spawning a whole other field of study about what is, what is it about the context? What is it about society that might breed addiction? And what people are continuing to find is that there might be a lot more about what we consider the American dream in society today that, that replicates those isolated rat cages than we might want to think. So some great examples of this is we know that in indigenous populations in the United States and Canada and across the world, there are really high rates of addiction, whether that's to drug or alcohol. Normally this has been thought of as just some sort of tragic genetic predisposition that's unique to those groups. But if you look back at the history of it, when the Hudson Bay Company, one of the largest companies in the world at the time, came over to the, United, came over to the New World and was looking for employees, they actually sought out different indigenous tribes because they thought that they were less likely to become alcoholics than their European counterparts. And what normally happened was not that we, you'd see widespread alcoholism when alcohol was first introduced, but you would actually see alcoholism spike a few generations later when alcohol had been introduced and those people had been removed from their lands or their culture had been taken away from them. 
And so we see this play out time and time again. There were European immigrants um, who were coming over and working in factories and in tenements. And we saw a spike in alcoholism in urban areas um, preceding the prohibition area. And then in our current drug crisis, it's come to the fore more recently, as we've seen a lot of white people in suburban and rural areas dying from opioid overdoses. But this has been going on for decades. And the overdose crisis actually started back in 1979, where every nine years since, we've seen a doubling in overdoses. And so that started first with the black communities in urban areas with the rise of the crack epidemic in the early 1980s. And what we saw there was redlining, economic devastation, um, not investing in public infrastructure, not investing in public school systems in urban areas with white flight. We see all of this kind of social disruption. We see people who had moved out of their historic homes because of uh, lynching and domestic terrorism in the South, moving into new areas. And then with the, that economic devastation, we see the rise of the crack epidemic. And tragically, at the time, we didn't look at that and say, what might be the social factors here? Or what about the trauma factors of systemic discrimination? What about jobs? What about investment in public infrastructure? We pointed the finger at the black community. We created these ideas of welfare queens and super predators, and we designed a system of mass incarceration to simply lock people up. We took a self-harming behavior and addiction, and we just simply we just added more harm. And the problem there is that it it worked to a certain extent of locking up 500,000 people certainly took some people off the streets who were committing crimes, but really what it did was perpetuate even deeper harm to those communi communities themselves and left us woefully unprepared to deal with the opioid crisis when it began to arise. Instead of investing in treatment, we invested in the atrocity of incarceration. And we're now seeing these ongoing ramifications even till today. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. We're going to come back to some of the parts you talked about here just a bit. Um, but you wrote, a false myth, increasingly difficult to believe, has led us to a place where hundreds of thousands are dying from deaths of despair. And one of the things that the opioid, opioid crisis has uncovered about our society is the stigma of those people and those communities are the drug users. And that's a lie. Um, this crisis has has covered up um, societal discrimination and racism by blindly believing only certain people groups um, face addiction. 
Um, so in many regards, the opioid crisis has, has caused um, white people to come to terms with um, that this is not something that's particularly biased towards a certain uh, race or, or gender or, or people group. Um, and you've noted this deeply in, in the book. So I, I wonder as, as a social conversation, as a conversation as a church, how do we begin to, um, to look at what uh, this recent crisis has begun to uncover about us as a society? One helpful thinker and framework for this is Rene Girard and understanding his the scapegoat mechanism that when conflict arises within a society, people are looking to find the cause. They want to blame someone. But the scapegoat mechanism tells us that oftentimes that blame goes in the wrong direction. And I think what happened with the rise of the crack epidemic was we created a scapegoat. We blamed the people who are suffering themselves. And the danger with that scapegoat mechanism is it does create a false sense of security that we have solved the problem by casting out them. And that kind of dichotomy blinds us to the dangers within ourselves and within our own community. So most people put the kind of the waning year, the decrease of the crack epidemic by about 1996. 1996 also happens to be the year that the FDA approved what they called a minimally addictive opioid, Oxycontin. And it was then that we started to see the death toll rise. You look back in the late 90s, um, white, black, and brown people were all using drugs at roughly similar rates. There was slightly higher overdose rates um, in the black and um, Hispanic communities, but overall it looked fairly similar. <clears throat> With the rise of the opioid epidemic, you're now seeing overdose rates at four or five times the rates for black and brown communities within white communities. That's shifted a little bit in the past few years where now uh, fentanyl has come into predominantly black urban areas and is now escalating those overdoses as well. And so this is a problem that consumes us all. And when we turn a blind eye, it's not just that we're ignoring the problem, turning the blind eye actually makes it worse because addiction uh, breeds in silence. It grows in silence. When people feel that shame, when they feel that stigma, when they feel like, oh, this is supposed to be someone else's struggle, not my own. I shouldn't be struggling with this. It makes that struggle even harder. And it makes that person less likely to be open to the treatment that they need to enter into recovery. And so the important, critical place for churches within this conversation as a place to say, you know what, we, we for too long have had addiction recovery um, meetings that are in churches. It's AA on a Wednesday night, but not of the church. It's tangential. We let people use the space, but we don't talk about what could be happening inside our congregation. We don't talk about what's happening either with someone who's sitting in the pews on a Sunday or that person's immediate circle. And I think expanding that conversation to say, if you, th if you think that addiction isn't affecting the people in your congregation or the people in your community or the people in your small group, uh, that's not a sign of moral accomplishment. That's probably just a sign of moral blindness, that you aren't in a space where you're talking about the real struggles that people are engaging in on a day-to-day -day basis. 
And it should be noted um, at the time of our conversation, um, several states, including Oklahoma, have been legally fighting against some of the big name drug companies over compensation funds for treating the opioid crisis. Several multi-million dollar lawsuits have been won. The current presidential administration signed a $1.8 billion of funding for states to combat crisis through treatment and supporting near real-time data on the drug overdose crisis. Um, in the book, you, you touch on the fact that the war on drugs and initiatives started by the Reagan administration was um, an institutional act of scapegoating rather than addressing the real issues. Do you think these new efforts have the same look and feel to, to Reagan's war on drugs, or, or are they something different? That's a great question, because while I simultaneously, I've got no love for big pharma, um, we also need to be careful to not simply point the finger at one institution and think that we've solved the problem. Because part of these waves that we've seen with the overdose crisis, there was a lot with diverted uh, prescription opioids, but the initial crackdown on prescribing had the effect of moving people from a prescription opioid where they knew the dosage onto street drugs like heroin and now fentanyl. And that is why even as the percentage of people in the United States with a substance and opioid use disorder has gone down, the death rate has gone up because the substances people are using continue to be more and more dangerous. And so we're seeing some good signs of distribution of things like naloxone, which is able to bring um, people back from an overdose. It is phenomenal. It's, it's something that is amazing to see someone at the brink of death come back to life. And that is a core value that we have as Christians is that, that, that every life is precious. Every life is sacred. It doesn't matter if that person's in the midst of using drugs, but at the same time, while we keep hearing more politicians saying that we can't incarcerate our way out of this problem, we can't arrest our way out of this problem, they are still tepid on actually shifting in ways that are meaningful. Um, it has been kind of prison light, and that hasn't addressed the root cause and the root reality that addiction is a self-harming behavior, and simply increasing the harm associated with that addiction doesn't get to the root of the problem. And I hope that we are able to look in the future at a more radical transformation of how do we make sure that in a country like Portugal, where they now spend more on treatment than they do on enforcement. You know that the average uh, cost to lock every, someone up for a year is twenty-four dollars to $25,000. That money could be so much better spent on treatment but that can't happen as long as our front line is still always a law enforcement, a criminal justice model, as opposed to treating this addiction crisis as the public health crisis that it is. One of the things that the, the war on drugs um, has been waging, I guess, next 35 years or so after Reagan started it was it was on a certain type of drugs, a more lucrative and legal drug crept into our culture. And in more recent years, one of the drugs that was a central focus for law enforcement has gained more public support and legalization, namely marijuana. So if, if marijuana is legalized in all states, how should the government rectify those who have served prison time for possession or use or distribution of it? And so while Nixon 
certainly brought the war on drugs to a new level. It is important to remember that um, a, a racially biased war um, on drugs actually started much earlier. So you go all the way back to the 1870s. The first restriction on any opium product ever passed um, was specifically targeting Chinese immigrants who smoked opium instead of taking it um, with alcohol or as an injection as most white people did. And so that was the first law restricting any kind of opium, and it soon was followed up by the Chinese Exclusion Act. And so the, there's been a long history in our country with a variety of different um, racial groups and ethnicities of tying together and targeting people with drug use specific to their community and making that the focus while ignoring it for other parts of the dominant culture. And so we saw that all the way back with the Chinese Exclusion Act. We saw that with the initial criminalization of marijuana, where the primary driving narrative was that it was um, Latinx people who were using the drug and it made them violent. We saw that with targeting heroin. Um, one small fact, the drug I was on, hydromorphone, um, is the cl clinical equivalent of heroin. Heroin was just singled out as an opioid. There's nothing specifically bad about it. It can be good or dangerous, just like any other opioid. It was singled out because of its use in the jazz scene among black musicians. So there's a long history of these different racial biases, and it, it will be critical to figure out how we address those historic injustices. And I think that there's a lot of good and interesting plans on the table. Anything from looking at broad scale um, <clears throat> restitution to a variety of communities through community improvement programs of taking that tax money and making sure that it goes back um, to direct um, kind of direct compensation for those who have been unjustly incarcerated for these non-violent drug offenses. There's a lot of different proposals um, that are out there on the table, and it is exciting to see that more candidates are talking about this and more candidates are acknowledging the specific racialized history. How that will be best brought about, I think that is going to take a lot more conversations with the communities who are affected, being able to lift up the ways that they feel their communities can best benefit from these shifts. You mentioned earlier the church in many regards um, maybe isn't talking about or has handled um, substance abuse um, in the best way. I mean, we, we host NA and AA groups, um, but in many regards, we're not equipped or prepared to care for people with addictions. Um, but that shouldn't be a, a preventative deterrent for change. So for the local church ministers and leaders listening to this conversation, what can they do to best equip themselves and their congregation for this type of ministry? Well, the first thing I'd encourage any pastor to do is if they haven't before, attend an AA meeting. And you'll see a whole different kind of church in the works. Um, there is a way that people are simultaneously honest about their struggles. They are able to speak to them. Well, at the same time, there's that common vision and unity that everyone who's there 
wants to be in a better place than they were the day before, or they want to maintain that sobriety um, that they have achieved. And it's a beautiful thing to be a part of, and it's a beautiful thing to see, and it's inspiring for what the church as a body can be. And there's aspects of what I think the church should be that AA just does better right now. now at the same time, um, I hope people will dive in deeper because AA, while it has been such an important thing for so many people, is not the only model for understanding addiction and is not the only model for treating addiction. Um, there's a lot of other great evidence-based ways that um, pastors can get training on. And that's anything from motivational interviewing, which there's often day-long workshops that can teach a pastor uh, the basics of how to have an initial conversation with someone who might be wrestling with substance um, abuse and make sure that they are then knowledgeable about where that person can go. But one thing that I think is critical is to know that this is one of those areas where you can't assume that people are going to feel comfortable talking about what's going on in their life. My mom and my family, we knew how to send out an email on the listserv to our church to say, Tim's in the hospital. Will you pray for him? We, I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want that email to go. I didn't, but I wouldn't have known how to say that to a church community myself of that, hey, I'm through the hospital hospitalization, but now I'm in the midst of a new struggle and I need support. And so being able to name in your congregation that this is a safe place to have those conversations. This is a safe space to come forward and say, yes, that's my struggle, or yes, that's happening in my family, or yes, that's happening to a friend is so important. And if you are a pastor in a high risk area where there are overdoses, it would be great. To, I'd love to see across the country, a pastor get up with Narcan, with Naloxone, that, that, op that reversal medication for overdoses, and say, I am carrying this because I care more about your life than I do about the behavior you're struggling with right now. I care about making sure that you can stay healthy, that you can stay alive. You can come as you are. And that's an important philosophy. And in the addiction space, it's called harm reduction. That what's the important is to allow people to take one step. They might not be at the place where they're going to quit their substance use tomorrow. It might not be for months or it might not be for years. But what people need is some sort of relationship. They need to know there's someone they can trust, someone they can talk to, someone that can be there for them, someone that cares about their health and safety even while they're still using. And that is such an important philosophy of drawing people in because without those kind of relationships, there isn't the kind of hope that a lot of people need. The book's been out since June. Uh, what kind of feedback have you been getting from your readers? One of the great things that I, I've heard and I was hoping was a message that I come through is there is a lot about the origins of the crisis. There's a lot about how bad things are, not with just with opioids, but anything from addictions to gambling or addictions to you know, video games. Um, there is a lot that is hard. There's so many things that need to improve. But the biggest thing that I've heard back from folks is that they're glad the book ends in hope and that it ends in resurrection. And the story that I, the study that I love to share with people is how much simply how we talk about addiction 
can change the reality for people looking to step into, for people stepping into recovery. So there are these two researchers, Leek and King, and they went to three different alcohol recovery centers and they studied each person who was being treated there. And then they went to the staff and the counselors and they gave them a list of these are the people we believe are most likely to enter into recovery. So then the researchers came back and they checked in periodically. And over the course of a few years, they found out, sure enough, they were spot on. Every person on their list was more likely to get sober and stay sober, more likely to get a job and keep that job. And if they relapsed, <clears throat> it was shorter and less severe. So everyone wanted to know, what was it that they had figured out that allowed them to so powerfully predict who was going to enter into sobriety? And the big reveal was it was nothing. The researchers had randomly assigned each person to that list. The only thing that had changed was the expectations of the staff and the counselors. Another study, they wanted to compare a whole bunch of different methods for treating addictions, and they were going to figure out which one was the most effective. And at the end of it, they didn't find that big of a difference between these different approaches that they studied. But what they did find was there was a huge difference inside of each methodology that was driven primarily by the empathy rating of the counselor. And even more than that, in subsequent studies, they found it was primarily driven by the counselors who were just burned out and not interested and were <clears throat> not empathetic with their patients. And so it's those two things that hope that recovery is possible. And that kind of long view that, yeah, someone might not be stop using their substance today. They might not stop using tomorrow. But that doesn't mean we can't be in a relationship of love and empathy with that person as they're going through their journey. Because you don't know when that moment will be that that person is going to say that they are ready for treatment, that they do want things to change, and they need those relationships of trust. They need to know, to know that there's places they can go when that time comes. And so while we have a much better medical understanding of addiction, we've got a public health understanding of addiction, we've got a scientific understanding of how it changes the brain and the medications that are needed, still what is so deeply needed is that empathy. What is needed is that hope. What is needed is that belief that resurrection is possible in all of our lives, that when we think things are at its darkest, that there is still hope for all of us, that there's still hope for that new life. I find this always to be a funny question for somebody who's written a book, um, because the fact that you wrote a book is a pretty big deal. But what's next for you? Well, one of the big things that I hope to be able to do in the coming years is to have these conversations at churches and in communities across the country. I think that how local communities talk about this and approach this can have a dramatically transforming effect. And I also think that this is a great area that we as people of faith can take our values and to speak out to show that the criminal justice system we have today isn't a justice system, it's a punishment system. And, it's, and it focuses on um, people who we have discriminated against now for centuries. And that that is an injustice. And as more white communities understand the effects of drugs, that this is the time to step into the conversations that black and brown communities have been having for generations. And to say, how can we be partners? 
We have been blind, but now we see how can we be partners in transforming this system into a place of restoration as opposed to punishment? And how can we use addiction and treatment as a stepping stone for people who might not have been allies before to understand that what the system we have now isn't just um, isn't just isn't helping, it's actively making things worse. There's one study done in Baltimore, 1,200 IV drug users, and they wanted to see what treatments were most effective. And again, they didn't find a lot of evidence about those treatments. The biggest thing that they found is if someone goes to prison, they are more likely to continue using that substance for the rest of their life than those who don't go to prison. And so I hope that this is a conversation we can have about addiction in particular, but then also this is something that I'd love to have a role in helping faith communities have that conversation of what it looks like to engage in not just addiction and drug policy, but in criminal justice reform as a way to move forward and to make sure that we don't just keep repeating these cycles of locking people up and having these epidemics time and time again. For those that want to stay connected with Tim, you can visit McMahonKing.com. Of course, follow him on social media. Go out and purchase Addiction Nation wherever books are sold. Tim, thank you for giving us a glimpse into the way we can boldly support those facing addiction. And thank you for your courage to use your story to help change lives. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to know there's a lot better Baptists out there. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This podcast is supported by Living Earth Ceramics. Living Earth Ceramics has been on Etsy, bringing pottery to you for almost 10 years and has over 20 years of pottery experience. The focus is not only creating pieces that help bring lasting memories to your community and your life and your family through pottery, but also the support of charitable donations to organizations in need. Living Earth Ceramics created an amplifier in 2011 to help those with hearing loss, like the owner herself. Other items have included mugs, serving ware, custom plates, and orders for newlyweds and holiday memories, gallery items, and custom requests for communal pieces to religious organizations. Living Earth Ceramics Shop on Etsy offers 10% discount to orders using the coupon code CBF Conversations. That's one word, CBF Conversations, with a free shipping now available to the continental United States. Living Earth Ceramics proudly supports our message of hope and love for all people. For more information, visit etsy.com backslash shop backslash living earth ceramics. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. 
Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return.